So at the beginning of Shelter in Place, I was at Costco buying some milk when I suddenly noticed that every single person in the store had a cart with a pack of toilet paper in it. So I didn't know what was going on. I thought maybe there was like a fire sale on toilet paper or something. It, it turns out it was just regular price. And so I thought to myself, well, I don't really need any more toilet paper right now. I've still got like half a pack at home. So I walked up to the checkout and standing in line and uh, you have to understand, I normally pride myself on being a very logical and rational person. I did major in mechanical engineering in college. But as I was standing there, I was suddenly gripped with this strange feeling and I found myself hurrying to the back of the store and, and tossing a pack of toilet paper into my cart. And so as I was walking back to my car, I thought to myself, what was that all about? Of course, later I realized what had gripped me was just FOMO, was just fear of missing out of toilet paper. Um, I did it just because basically everybody else was doing it and everybody else was doing it because they thought everyone else was doing it too. And so we all had FOMO and soon the store had no toilet paper. We all fear missing out. Actually, if this year has shown us anything about humanity is that we all fear, period. Now, normally we do our best as a society to kind of distract ourselves from the truth that we are really soft, squishy, vulnerable creatures that our lives really stand on the knife's edge and one sudden shift in one tectonic plate or one rogue mutation in one cell could really mean the beginning of the end for even the most vibrant life. And as if cancer and earthquakes were not enough, now we are daily and inescapably reminded of our mortality. How fitting then in such fearful times we examine or re-examine the Christmas story. Now there's usually this warm glow around Christmas, whether it's in a song or in a movie or even in an ad. And I think that warm glow is really fitting for what Christmas represents. Peace on earth, God coming to be with us. But that glow can also obscure some of the gritty facts about Christmas, that the real Christmas was a poor, lowly, helpless, desperate, and even frightening story. And at the center of that story, is the creator God himself, the one character who had the power to choose what part he played. And yet he wrote himself into the center of what must have seemed like a catastrophe at the time. And he made himself the most powerless, helpless, and weak character. I think the story has something to say to all of us in our fears. So reading from Matthew chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So in Matthew's telling, the backdrop of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, is set ironically against the story of another king named Herod. Turns out Herod was at this time king of Judah, but he wasn't even Jewish himself. So how did he get that job? We know from history that his dad was best buddies with Caesar. So that's how Herod got himself appointed as a client king when Rome took over the area. So no wonder Herod was plagued with this sense of insecurity. At even the mention of a rival to the throne, it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he begins to plot the destruction of this child and lies to the wise men about his intentions. But divine intervention thwarts his schemes. Let's read on. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. This is the gruesome end to the nativity scene, a family fleeing in the dark to seek asylum in Egypt, while the silent night is pierced by the screams of mothers desperately hiding their children from Herod's soldiers going door to door. That's the real Christmas story. It was a frightful scene, the kind of start to life that we would labor hard to avoid for our own children. And when told with all these gritty details, the manger where Jesus lay doesn't seem so warm and inviting as on your typical nativity display. It looks rather vulnerable and, and pathetic, and where all of us would much rather be on a cold winter's night is maybe in the palace to be protected by privilege and power where Herod is. Now here in America, we pride ourselves on being a democracy where on paper, all men are created equal. But it only takes a moment's reflection to realize that we are really an aristocracy, an aristocracy of the attractive, the talented, the intelligent. It's a different kind of royalty, not based strictly on the accident of birth, but really close enough. And if you're dealt less than an ideal hand in life, the way out is to leverage whatever you do have academically, professionally, socially, to climb higher on this mountain where it's narrow at the top. So whether it's toilet paper or 401k plans, we all think by grabbing and hoarding stuff, we can protect ourselves from the ups and downs in life. So many palaces, fortresses, mansions, they're always on high ground. It's a good view, of course, but also naturally defensible. And when you add some walls and gates and guards, we think come flood or fire or famine, we're gonna be fine. That's what society tells us to reach for, to climb our way into Herod's palace where we'll be safe from economic downturns, political upheaval, social unrest, and even natural disasters. That's probably what Herod himself felt until that fateful night when he got the news about a new king who's come to town, news that shook him to his core. Because for all his outwardly impressive might and power inside, he was deeply insecure, anxious, and fearful. Fearful enough to deceive, to manipulate, and even to kill. And ironically, the more powerful he got, the more he had to lose, and I think the more fearful and insecure he became. Now, none of us are murderous tyrants like him, but are our motivations so different? Why do we aspire to that big name school or that professional title? Why do we labor to accrue more wealth and material goods than any human being really reasonably needs? Why do we idolize strength and power and competence? A huge part of our drive and motivation is the desire to be protected, to be secured, untouchable, so that all hell can break loose in the world, but as long as we can keep that hell outside our gates, we're fine. We aspire to that vision of life because, well, we're afraid, and our fears drive us pretty hard. So King Herod might be an ancient and extreme example, but his life shows the timeless truth that the quest for self-protection leads ultimately to greater insecurity, paranoia, and fear of the inevitable. But a life of fear-driven power-seeking is all we've ever known until Jesus came. 
And that's why Jesus' coming caught everybody off guard because if, as the Bible does claim, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that would make him the most powerful being. And yet, when he chose to show up in our world, the Bible describes it in this way. In Luke chapter 2, it says, While they were there, the time came for her, for Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary was just one of countless peasant couples, displaced, impoverished, and powerless. So powerless that they could not find a place to stay for Mary to give birth. And so the child was born in a stable and spent his first night on earth in in a manger. That's an animal's feeding trough. What child is this? We are asked to believe that this, this is Christ the King. That's the claim of Christmas, that the vulnerable, squishy baby in the manger is none other than the all-powerful creator, God himself. And that claim strikes most of us as strange and even absurd. But maybe it's because we don't really understand true power. Because, of course, only the most powerful would be completely secure and thus fearless enough to be vulnerable, even to lower himself, to descend, to serve. There's a funny story about Thurgood Marshall. He's the first African-American justice on the United States Supreme Court. So he was leaving work one day, just wearing a normal suit, when a family of tourists in the Supreme Court building, they got lost and ended up in his elevator, which is a private elevator reserved only for the nine justices to use. Now, this being back in the 1960s, the tourists, who were white, looked at the lone black man inside and assumed that he was the elevator operator. So one of them just said to him, first floor, please. And the story goes, without missing a beat, Justice Marshall just said, yes, sir, yes, sir. And he pressed the button on the automatic elevator. They got to the ground floor and he stepped back. And without another word, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall bowed and ushered the family out with a smile. Only someone with true power would be secure enough to humble himself, to descend, and even to serve. Only somebody with absolute power would be fearless enough to absolutely surrender it instead of desperately clutching onto it for dear life. So it turns out what we see when we stare at a millionaire's mansion or a massive army, they're not manifestations of power. They are signs of anxiety and fear. Again, think about why do we want strength? It's because we're afraid of weakness. Why do we want wealth? because we're scared of poverty. Why do we want status and significance? Because we are so terrified of being rejected and forgotten. We are fearful creatures and our fears manifest themselves in the thickness of our walls and the diversity of our portfolios. But by coming without armor or armies, Jesus showed himself as the most fearless one of all. And being fearless, Jesus used his power not to protect himself or raise himself up, But he emptied himself. Descending, he crossed an unfathomable distance from heaven to our dirty, messed up world. And he shows up as an infant who hungers and thirsts, who is so weak he would die unattended, whose body would bleed when cut. Which is why his parents had to usher him from Herod's soldiers because the time for him to bleed had not yet come. Though that is ultimately why he came, to bleed and to die for the sins of mankind. So, of course, Jesus came clothed in flesh, and he surprised us all because we don't understand true power. 
we also don't understand true love. That's another reason why Jesus was not driven by the fears common to men. The Bible says this, that perfect love drives out fear. True love is fearless, is unafraid of rejection or pain or hurt because true love is not focused on the self, but on the other. And Jesus' love enabled him to be vulnerable because actually that is what it means to love at all. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, wrote this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So rejecting the way of Herod and of the world, Jesus started out in life just about as low as you can imagine. And from there, he kept descending, kept serving, eventually sacrificing himself to save us from our sins. It was love, not fear, that drove Jesus to live a life bookended by the manger and the cross. And his was not a tragic story. Far from it, his life and death and resurrection changed the course of human history and continues to bring eternal life and hope and joy to every person who calls on his name. In what has been a fearful year for all of us, I can think of no better way to end than to reflect on the message of Christmas, the message that the powerful creator of the universe, fearless in his love for us, He came into our messy world to be with us and ultimately to save us from our sins. Now, I know a lot of us may be heading out this year and looking down at the road at all the uncertainty that is 2021. We might be tempted to shrink back in fear. Let's all remember that as Christ followers, we follow the one who went to the manger and then to the cross. Now, maybe this Jesus and Christianity thing is fairly new to some of you. If so, I really invite you to keep looking into the Christmas story and the life of Christ, because if this is true, then that means we are not cosmic accidents or orphans in a cold and dark universe who have to fend for ourselves in this futile quest that leads to only more insecurity and fear. Because if Christmas is true, then you and I have a creator God who loved us so much, he crossed an infinite chasm breaking into space and time in human history to become one of us and express his love in the most vulnerable way possible. And unlike most religions, Christianity is rooted in the facts of history, facts which can be investigated and verified. Jesus of Nazareth is more than a legend, just like Herod or Caesar, but his legacy and impact on history far outstrips that of any solitary human life. If Christmas even could be true, You owe it to yourself to find out. And if you're already a Christian, I hope you and I can continue to meditate on the message of Christmas and then allow it to challenge our aspirations for greatness, for power and strength. We don't find Jesus in the palaces of privilege and protection because Jesus is great, but not in the way that the world understands greatness. He is power, but not in the way that the world understands power. And instead of taking our cues from the world and seeking power and security in a quest that only leads to increasing anxiety and fear, 
let's gaze at the glory of God in the manger. May that sight transform us from the inside and change our understanding of love, of power, of what we ought to pursue and how we are to be in this broken world. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you so much uh, that you're a God who is strong and powerful, but not in the way that we understand power. And Lord, thank you that you also know that we are frail, weak, and vulnerable creatures, that we are fearful at heart. And thank you that the story of the Christmas is the story of you coming to be with us in our brokenness and fears and weakness, and that you became even one of us, um, but that you were so secure and confident um, that you could open yourself up vulnerably to love us and to even sacrifice and die for us. I pray that the Christmas story would continue to kind of resound in our hearts and cause us to seek true greatness, um, not in the palaces of the world, but in the manger where lays Jesus, the King of Kings. We thank you and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining our service and we hope to see all of you next week. We're going to close our time together now with a short Christmas carol, so please feel free to sing along. <laughs>